Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics chat. Today I'm speaking with Mohammed Abul Hassan Sami, who's an assistant professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. And uh, we will be discussing the DNA shape and uh, its role in the binding of transcription factors to the DNA. Hassan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Roman. Thanks for having me. I think that uh, most of the people who are listening to this podcast are sort of aware of what transcription factors and DNA binding proteins in general are. But uh, can you give a brief overview about uh, DNA binding proteins and uh, what is known about them? Yeah, sure. Um, so basically, DNA binding proteins... Um, they bind the DNA in a sequence-specific manner. It means that every protein, they have a preference of binding at certain locations in the DNA. And upon binding at these specific locations, they carry on important tasks. For example, controlling the activity of gene or, uh, or compacting the genome in certain ways. So when these proteins cannot bind the DNA at the right location, this may lead to disease. For example, uh, transcription factors can play their roles properly only when they are able to bind to their specific sites. If a mutation in the DNA changes that site, this can change the binding activity of the transcription factor, and this in turn can lead to diseases. Um, there are several known examples of, of this phenomenon. For example, osteoarthritis, which is a disease of bone, is known to be caused by a single change in a transcription factor binding site. Um, same goes for like polydactyly, which is a disease of growing extra finger. Again, these are because of um, some mutations changing the binding site of one transcription factor. So the overall idea is transcription factors, they need to bind at very specific places in the genome. And upon binding these places, they carry on important tasks for our health and disease. Um, and we are interested in understanding how changes in the DNA can lead to different type of, of uh, changes in activity of transcription factor DNA binding. That is fascinating. And the transcription factors are probably the most common, most well-known uh, kind of the DNA binding proteins. But uh, can you mention what the other types are and what they do? So, um, for example, there are some other types of protein um, which are important for compacting the DNA in a certain way inside our nucleus. So the DNA is a very long thread, if you imagine it that way, but it needs to be compacted and like coiled and packaged inside the DNA. So there are other proteins who are responsible for compacting the DNA in a certain way that the genes that are necessary to be active in a certain cell type, they remain accessible by the regulatory proteins and other regulatory molecules in a, in a nice localized way. So this kind of means that we are thinking about taking a very long thread and, and we need to make sure that the thread is compacted in a very tiny space. But still, there should be enough room for certain parts of this thread to, to, be to be able to communicate with each other. So there are proteins like CTCF, cohesin, 
these SMC, these types of protein carry on these activities of um, compacting the DNA inside the nucleus. And this, again, the whole proper uh, compaction of DNA inside the nucleus, it's very, very important for our health and in general physiology and disease. And uh, it's pretty well known today that uh, transcription factors, they, they target specific uh, sequence, specific sequence motifs uh, inside the DNA. But your research looks into not just the sequence itself, but the physical shape of the double-stranded DNA. And uh, can you describe uh, what, what you mean by the shape? What, what is it? Yeah, so that's a good question to discuss at the beginning. So um, as I just mentioned that if we imagine DNA as a strand, as a long thread, and honestly that's the, that's the more conventional way to look or think about DNA, that uh, we think that DNA can be expressed as, uh, as a sequence of A, C, G, and T. But if we think about DNA, it is a molecule which is formed by these chains of building blocks called nucleotides. And by A, C, G, and T, we mean these different nucleotides. So each nucleotide, it's a combination of a nitrogen base and a sugar and a phosphate. And there are four different types of nitrogen bases for which we use these four different letters, A, C, G, and T. Now, they all combine, they build the DNA in a nice long chain of letters, but actually... They are building DNA as a three-dimensional molecule. So in course of building DNA as a three-dimensional molecule, this is actually becoming that famous double helix shape, which, which has its own uh, twists and grooves. And there are, sh- there are different gaps that form between the rungs of this ladder-like structure. So overall, there are... There are uh, different grooves and and geometric angles that start forming between these A, C, G, and T. It's as if we are looking at a huge, let's say, uh, sculpture that has very obvious facades, and the obvious facades are A, C, G, and T. But in this sculpture, there are also very uh, a a lot of uh, angles and grooves that also carry information. So by DNA shape, we mean that we are trying to understand the role of these grooves and angles that form between A, C, G, and T, uh, as if there is a keyhole for proteins to slot into. So our hypothesis is when a protein recognizes its binding site, it does not only think about A, C, G, and T, but it also takes into account the overall overall uh, pattern of those grooves and geometric angles and then like a key it slots into the specific sites yeah and uh, we should also make it clear that when you talk about the dna shape you mean sort of the micro shape the micro features of the dna as opposed to the macro features so often in bioinformatics we're interested in like how the DNA is wrapped around histones or or even larger arrangements of the DNA when we uh, talk about things like Hi-C or Atex-Seq. Uh, but you mean like really, really fine-grained 3D features of the DNA, right? That's correct. That's correct. So we are talking about the grooves and the angles that form between just neighboring bases. Like if we have a sequence A, C, C, T, 
we are thinking about the shape between the first A and the second C, and then the second C and the third C, and so on. So we are talking about the DNA shape at a very fine grain, as you just mentioned, and thanks for clarifying that, um, at a very fine scale that happens between neighboring nucleotides. And I think when the uh, double helix was first uh, discovered in the 50s, I think it was assumed that uh, it has this very regular shape. But like, do you know at what point uh, did people realize that there are actually these variations uh, in the uh, in the shape of the DNA, depending on which bases precisely are uh, paired? Um, that's a good question, and I don't have a, a, a very definite answer for that. But what I can just add here is this idea of of transcription factors being aware of DNA shape when they recognize their sites. This idea came around in, in 1980s. So there are some uh, classical reviews by, um, by Pabo. I mean, they, they are very famous names in this, in this realm. Um, by Pabo, by Travers, Sauer, who all mentioned that when, when uh, a protein recognizes its DNA binding site, Presumably, the shape of the site, which can differ from one context into another context, also influences the transcription factor's decision-making. And uh, for the macro um, 3D structure of the DNA, uh, as I mentioned, we have these uh, sequencing methods that can uh, give us some insight into how the DNA is arranged on this uh, macro level. Uh, but for the DNA shape, how do we know? Uh, how do we know the DNA shape? So that's a very good question. Um, as of now, we cannot know the DNA shape of uh, an arbitrary length DNA sequence by doing an experiment. So the data that we, that we, ha- that we are using comes from a simulation pipeline. Um, this simulation pipeline was developed by uh, Dr. Remo Rose in University of Southern California. And they simulated thousands of DNA sequences, and each DNA sequence is about 40 base pairs long. Now, in the simulation environment, when these sequences, they become stable, then they record the DNA shape value, again, at, at very microscopic resolution at between each nucleotide from these 2,000 sequences. Um, but I should emphasize that, again, this is coming from the simulated environment. And then from these recorded values, they build a model that takes uh, every five base pair long sequences and can give a prediction of the DNA shape values at the middle position of those five base pairs of those five base pairs. Now they tested the predictions of this model against available extra structure data, and they found that the model was fairly accurate. But as you just said, that uh, this is not. This is not uh, something comparable to high C technology where we can do an experiment and tell very precisely that in this specific cell type at this specific locus of DNA, these are the exact values of DNA shape. But again, this is assumed and it, it comes from some rationale that these DNA shape values, they will remain fairly consistent because they are we are talking about them at a very local scale. So even though we are thinking about the DNA coiling, the exact values of the, of the geometric properties might change, but the local pattern of, let's say, maxima and minima in the DNA shape of a given sequence should remain consistent. 
when this is uh, bending and binding uh, with other proteins to compact in the nucleus. You mentioned that it's been recognized since the 80s that the DNA shape affects the way uh, the DNA binding proteins recognize uh, their their binding sites. Uh, can you walk us through the main developments since the 80s and leading to basically your research? Uh, what what have people learned since then? And uh, what was your goal uh, in uh, in conducting your research? Yeah, sure. So um, as much as as we have learned in course of these many years, um, so these initial studies where where these these classical reviews were written, uh, those were looking at a few handful of crystallized uh, structure of DNA in context of a bound protein, and uh, over the years people have studied DNA sequence more than DNA structure. Again, before this beautiful pipeline developed by, by uh, Dr. Remo Rose, we did not have a clear way even to get predictions of, of uh, DNA shape of arbitrary DNA sequences. So eventually, the technology development for assessing protein DNA binding focused on identifying the sequences of bound uh, of uh, the sequences bound to proteins. So, for example, ChIP-seq or other in vitro methods, all these methods, they give us a set of sequences where, which are assessed by an experiment uh, having bound by a protein. So, so, although there was this hypothesis in a more classical uh, context, but in practice, we have consistently focused on understanding the sequence characteristics of protein DNA binding. And that has been pretty much the way uh, we have made progress over the last two decades. And I should emphasize that at times people have thought about uh, to take dinucleotides, like not only think about uh, an A independent of the following C, but also what happens if I have an AC as the dinucleotide in the first position for the transcription factor binding site. Uh, but in general, everything was very much focused on the sequences. And this was doing fairly well. I mean, this assumption of sequence um, being characteristics of, of uh, protein DNA binding gave us good approximations. And for many transcription factors, this, was, this is still the best approximation. I mean, we don't need to go to... Um, go to more complex models that take DNA shape into account. But we also were always seeing these gaps in our findings. By gaps, I mean many binding sites in the genome or even in in vitro studies cannot be explained by sequence-based models. And this is also fairly known that two completely different proteins are sometimes found to have the same sequence-based model. Now, these two different proteins, they are often in the same family of proteins, but they bind totally different sites in our genome. So when we see the same sequence-based model, it gives us a thought that they should compete for the same sites in the genome, but it doesn't happen. They bind totally different sites. So the sequence-based models, they have been more of a computational convenience and also the lack of proper supply of DNA shape data made that our only choice to move ahead with. 
And uh, that has given us a very rich literature over the last two decades. And uh, the literature consistently showed that for some proteins, sequence is very good. But in general, for a large number of proteins, there are these gaps that we cannot explain every bound sequence with the sequence-based models. And oftentimes, proteins in the same family, although they have the same sequence motif, they recognize totally different sites in the genome. And then uh, during uh, 2013, 14, 15, when this data set was made available by, by Dr. Remo Rose, more and more people uh, started utilizing DNA shape into the model. So these models became like a, a combined model of sequence feature and shape feature of protein-bound regions. And they readily saw that including DNA shape features can improve model performance. They also saw that uh, if you include DNA shape, it kind of tells us that flanking regions outside the binding motif also influence protein DNA binding. So these models brought new insights and also gave a boost in accuracy for protein, uh, protein DNA binding prediction. So that's where we became interested, that DNA shape, at the end of the day, this is, um, this is determined by the nucleotide itself and its neighboring nucleotides. So how about we totally remove sequence information from our model once we have recognized, uh, once we have computed shape from the sequence, how about we remove sequence information and we try to see what kind of consistent patterns of DNA shape pop out to be significantly powerful in explaining protein DNA binding. So that was our initial hypothesis that uh, we tried to see if there are characteristic patterns of DNA shape characterizing protein DNA binding. Um, and then we came up with this algorithm, which is a modification of, of uh, sequence motif discovery algorithms. And we applied our algorithm, which you call Shape Motif Finder, Shape MF, on large-scale ChIP-seq datasets and also in vitro datasets. And we found that, in fact, many, many proteins, um, they recognize at least in our, in our analysis, we see that these proteins, they recognize consistent patterns of DNA shape. And these patterns of DNA shape that we call shape motifs, they uh, correspond very well with the sequence motifs. So we had removed the sequence information when we started fitting the model. But still, when we went back after fitting the model and we looked at the places where these shape motifs occur, we see that, that the shape motifs, they pretty much co-occur with the occurrences of sequence motifs, but with two interesting uh, new findings. One is the shape motifs, they're typically longer than sequence motifs, which clearly shows how DNA shape in the flanking region of the sequence motifs have an influence in protein DNA binding. So this approach of looking directly at DNA shape captures that information more clearly. And secondly, we saw that uh, although two proteins, they may recognize the same sequence, they oftentimes recognize very distinct, very distinct shape patterns. I want to go back for a second to the research you mentioned uh, that was done, I think, by someone else. 
about the model that combined the sequence information with the DNA shape information. And uh, uh, there may be this question of, um, since you determine the DNA shape from the sequence data, yeah. then adding the DNA shape information to the sequence information, in theory, shouldn't provide any more information than the sequence itself because the sequence already contains the information about the uh, the shape, right? But I think um, the the point here is that uh, the model being used, they are sort of simple models that by themselves cannot uh, infer the shape information. And therefore, when we add another model, which is more maybe flexible and that can derive or, or more specialized that is able to derive the shape information from the sequence information and we're sort of augmenting our feature space that gives us more information is that correct that's correct the sequence based models more classically and again this is for the sake of uh, of statistical robustness the sequence based models they assume that each nucleotide contributes independently to the protein, uh, to the protein DNA binding. Um, so these sequence-based models, more conventionally, they just look for what is the most likely sequence at the first position, what is the most likely nucleotide at the second position. Now, if these models, if we can make them like more flexible, as you just said, by by asking what are the most likely, let's say, trimers at the first position then eventually they also start capturing the shape information. That's very true. Uh, but the point is that kind of complex models comes at the cost of increased parameters. And then it goes into the statistical issue of whether we are learning proper parameters, whether we are being able to um, learn generalizable models and so on. So that's where I think uh, DNA shape is more appropriate because this is exact data we plug it into the model and we discover patterns of DNA shape rather than thinking about any new parameters being introduced for higher order sequence features. So a deep learning model, for example, is ideally very suited to discover DNA shape information in course of discovering sequence patterns. A deep learning model, it, it captures higher order sequence information. It does not look only at a single nucleotide at a given position. It goes for multiple nucleotides at a stretch. So in that way, a support vector machine or a deep learning model, model, they can capture the same information, but without an interpretation. So DNA shape feature, when we when you use them in the model, we have a clear interpretation and we do not have to run into those issues of additional parameters. Yeah, so given the popularity nowadays of deep learning, I'm sure not even uh, one uh, research group, but probably several groups have tried to uh, predict the transcription factor binding sites using deep neural networks. Yeah. And uh, do you know if anyone tried whether for, for this deep, deep learning models, uh, augmenting the... Uh, input space with the shape information enhances the prediction or if the network can figure it out itself just from the sequence data and it doesn't need any help in that? Uh, that's a good question. So actually there are two questions. One is if someone has tried to augment uh, shape information as input to uh, neural networks. Um, as of now, and uh, I mean, 
I may be wrong, but I have seen one paper in BioArchive who tried to do this and who who pretty much came up with the same conclusion that uh, DNA shape data, of course, they improve a binding prediction. And also there are many regions in the genome where you do not see an occurrence of a sequence motif, but occurrence of those shape features. Um, this is not yet published as of now, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, I haven't seen any other group explicitly including shape information in, in deep neural networks. Um, also, I think it would be interesting if the, the groups that have started utilizing DNA, um, uh, utilizing deep neural networks for predicting protein DNA binding, if they like take their filters, so talking about convolutional neural networks, which is the most common type of network being used for, for learning uh, sequence motifs from DNA. Uh, I, have, I have seen that, that those colleagues of ours, they often discuss that they don't understand why some, some convolutions do not look like the more conventional motifs. I mean, those convolutions, they're important, but they don't exactly look like the sequence motifs. So if they take those convolutions and analyze the the shape patterns underlying those convolutions that would be interesting but uh as of now i personally haven't seen anyone doing that if someone wanted to just get accurate predictions of the uh, transcription fa factor binding sites they would probably use both the sequence information and the shape information because there's uh no point in like removing information right if you want to get accurate predictions you want to utilize as much information as you can and as you have um, but your idea was to basically train a model um, limiting the information it has access to so you only supply the dna shape data and uh, um, sort of withhold the uh, um, the, the sequence information. And so what what was the original motivation? Why uh, did you decide to, to go this way? That's basically, uh, as you just said, that shape, it is determined by sequence. So uh, we just wanted to see if we just input shape into a model and uh, we hold out the sequence information then we are already supplying sequence information embedded in the shape information. So what kind of patterns do pop out? That was our, our initial motivation. And the other way was, the other thing was, do we really see that there are consistent geometric patterns, which kind of goes with the other part of, of uh, protein binding literature? So when when uh, people study protein-protein interaction or protein binding to other chemicals, there is, there is always uh, some kind of lock and key kind of intuition. And we wanted to see if there is some similar signal that proteins dock into DNA as a 3D structure. So uh, again, this, the idea is one rule may not be the May, may not be the most appropriate description for every single transcription factor. It could be that some transcription factor, they're, they're really very specific about finding an A at the first position and a G at the third position. So in that way, we actually are holding out some relevant information 
in our model. But the overall idea was we wanted to see if we remove exact sequence information, it's not a 100% removal of that information. The information is still encoded in DNA shape. So that's already kind of saving us, but it also takes us to that interesting hypothesis that transcription factors, when they recognize their site, this happens as a conformation similarity in three-dimensional structures. So basically, this is something like ANOVA analysis of variance when you want to determine like how much of the information is contained in uh, every predictor, right? And, and this is your way to quantify how much information is in the shape that's sort of distinct from the sequence. Although, again, you, ha- you have this obvious correlations that uh, make this a bit messy, I guess. Yes, yes. Um, I think exactly that you said, that this is kind of uh, an analysis where we wanted to see how much information is captured uh, solely by DNA shape. But solely by DNA shape is a vague term because it's already coming from sequence. But we still wanted to separate the two signals, at least as two sources of information to the model. You already mentioned that uh, the way we know about the DNA shape is via these... uh... Uh, simulation models and statistical models is not direct experimental data. But uh, what specific information do you have access to? Like when you build your model, what are the inputs to the model in terms of the, the DNA shape? Yeah, so that's a good question. And and this is uh, now I'm giving more of a description of the pipeline that was output by the lab of Dr. Remo Rose. So these are tables. We have access to these tables and each table it's it's uh, it has 1024 rows corresponding to the all possible five nucleotide long sequences and for each sequence a table gives us the geometric property at the central position of that of that uh, pentamer so for example for minor groove width there is a table the table gives us at each row for the corresponding uh, pentamer, the table tells us what's the value of minor groove width at the central position of that pentamer. Similarly, we have a second table for helical twist, a third table for propeller twist, and so on. They have more than 10 of these uh, geometric properties uh, listed in this kind of tables. So when we take the DNA shape data, we take these tables, and now we have our sequences of interest For each sequence, we take the first five base pairs of the sequence, look up the value in the table, record it. We take the second five base pairs, look up the value in the table, record it. This way, we can transform a given sequence into a list of numbers coming from these tables of DNA shape. So that's what the information uh, we utilize in our models. And uh, once you have these inputs, the question then becomes what sort of model uh, to build on top of those inputs. So we already talked about deep learning models, but uh, what was your reasoning behind uh, choosing the, the model you chose? And uh, obviously tell us about uh, what you, what conclusion uh, you came to in choosing the model, but also how did you go through that uh, task? So, uh, of course, one choice would be deep learning, as you just mentioned. But uh, personally, we wanted to, 
start a model that we can interpret easily. I mean, there are approaches to interpret a deep learning model after you have fit the model. But we wanted to build the structure of the model from the beginning in a way that we can understand what's happening. So we went to one of the more classical models that was utilized in the past to discover sequence motifs. This is uh, based on uh, Gibbs sampling. So Gibbs sampling, again, the roots come from statistical physics. The idea is it's a procedure uh, to sample values of multiple variables simultaneously. So it's a joint probability distribution from which you are sampling the most likely values. And the most likely point is the combination of values of all the variables that you have sampled is as a combination, most likely. Um, so for us, each sequence has a corresponding variable. Each sequence gives us a variable. And this variable can take values which are starting points of the shape motif within the sequence. Can you explain that a little bit more? What do you mean by each sequence is a variable? Yeah, sorry. So uh, I, should have, I should have been somewhat more detailed. So when we are taking a data set where uh, we know that these sequences are already known uh, where the protein bound, then these sequences become our training examples. We want to train a shape motif from, from these sequences. And are, are you considering the sequences of some fixed length or is it whatever is under the cheap seek peak? Yes, so exactly. So we take like from, from, uh, from the public consortium, we have taken cheap seek peaks, which uh, actually we took same, leak, same, same length sequences. So we have like uh, at the point of maximum chip intensity, from that point, we go on both sides the same number of bases. In our case, we went for 50 bases. So these are 100 nucleotide long sequences. All sequences are the same length. And if we look at uh, in vitro data, for example, HTCLEX, then those sequences are already of the same length. So we are looking at sequences which have the same length and we, are, we have now our training data. So each sequence is, is a variable for us. And uh, the value that, can, that variable can take is, is where the shape motif can start within this sequence. So if a sequence is 100 base pair long, the variable corresponding to, to this sequence can take a value anything starting from 1 to 90, assuming that the shape motif is 10 base long. So then what we want to do is sample combination of values of all the variables in such a way that the corresponding window for that variable looks very similar. So let's say at the first pass, I just randomly pick one starting point for each variable within its corresponding sequence. That gives me, if I have 1,000 training sequences, that means we are talking about 1,000 variables. So that gives me one value for each variable. Now I can take the window starting from the corresponding sequences and check how similar are those shape windows to each other. So that gives me an error score. And we can translate this error score into an overall probability for this combination of variables. 
And then following the Gibbs sampling approach, we try to improve the next sample in such a way that we get more similar shape windows from this data set. So when it converges, meaning that when we do not see much improvement in, in reducing error, we take those locations from each sequence as our most likely values of these variables. And then we construct the shape uh, motif from those windows. And are, are you assuming that all the sequences uh, that are bound by a transcription factor, they all share the same uh, motif, the, the same shape motif, or do you allow for several ones? That's a very good question. So yes, so that's an assumption. Um, and I think that's, that's uh, a, a, a reasonable and parsimonious assumption to begin with. But if there is heterogeneity in shape motif, that's still an open question for us. I mean, by, by going into shape motif, we already are seeing some signal of heterogeneity in sequence motif, meaning that the same shape motif can come from more than one possible sequence motifs. Uh, now, whether there is heterogeneity in shape motif, that's uh, still left unanswered. But that's an interesting question. For now, we assume that this is the same shape motif, same shape pattern uh, going to be over, overly enriched in the training data. Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you compare these shapes for, for similarity? Do you just take the usual Euclidean distance? And uh, do, you, do you try to account for like different, I, I assume the different features, you have four features in total, and maybe you could, uh, you could recite them. I, I don't remember whether we named them or not yet. Uh, but uh, I think they're maybe like in different units. So um, how do you combine them into a single distance? That's another good question. So as of now, when we discover a motif, these motifs are par feature. So, so the four shape features that we have analyzed are helical twist, minor groove width, propeller twist, and roll. So as of now, we independently discovered shape motifs. So we take 1,000 sequences, the tables that I described before, we use those tables to get uh, the shape profiles for individual features. And then we run our model on these individual features. So, so, so many different features can uh, occur at different positions in the sequence? That's true. We, we give the model that flexibility, but in a post hoc analysis, we check whether that's really the case. And the answer is no. But interestingly, the features, they, they co-occur, but they also have like, so let's say there are cases where the helical twist motif and the minor groove width motif, they share some core part, but they're not exactly co-occurring. Um, there are some, some bases where the helical twist motif is more important. There are some bases where the minor group motif is more important. Um, but to answer your question about, about having a distance metric that combines the, the different shape features, we do not have that yet. Because again, I mean, that's, that's as of now something we are considering as a future work. But for now, we are discovering the motifs per feature. So, uh, we are kind of safe that uh, we are not combining different units, as we just mentioned. Um, 
And even within the same unit, we are taking Euclidean distances in the high dimension. So there is a possible source of error here as well. And uh, we, are, we are working on this. But for now, this is Euclidean distance on individual shape features. And you mentioned that uh, the motifs for different features, they tend to co-occur. So they occur roughly in the same regions uh, yes. of, the, of the sequence, which is, I think is very cool. But uh, is, the, is that true even accounting for the, uh, you know, y because your sequences are centered at the, uh, at the highest intensity point in the cheap seek peak, uh, you would assume that that's roughly where the motifs themselves would be centered. But when you control for that, uh, do you still find, so for example, when the motifs are uh, quite a bit off from the center, are they off from the center, like all in the same way? Do they, uh, uh, do they correlate in, in this way? That's a good question. Uh, we haven't checked this specific question uh, so rigorously. So the co-occurrence thing is, again, a statistic on co-occurrence, which you always found to be very significant, giving a co-occurrence signal. But what you are asking now is looking at the specific instances where one of the motifs have shifted away from the, uh, from the highest intensity region. Um, overall, I, we have seen that all these shape motifs they occur pretty much within a narrow region around the around the center, like sequence motifs. So uh, I would say that that's a minority of cases where one shape motif is very much off away from the center. But that's still an interesting possibility, and we haven't checked that yet. Right, because uh, so so you mentioned that's like a significant right a significant correlation, but. Uh, when calculating the significance, you have to come up with a, uh, you know, a good uh, null model. Yeah. And uh, if you consider all the positions in the sequences, like equally likely where the motif would start, that's probably not a great null model because well, we know they're not equally likely. We know that the closer to the center, the more likely it is. So it's, it's quite a bit, I mean, it's, it's, tricky to determine what the uh, you know what the null distribution would be uh, i guess yeah that's true that's true um so as you said that for now this is an assumption of of uniform likelihood for every for every possible distance between two motifs but uh what you were suggesting is take one more variable that would also capture the location of occurrence of individual motifs. So as of now, we are thinking about what's the inter-motif distance, and we are developing a null model on that. Um, I think that's an interesting idea. Uh, so, yeah, that's an, that's an interesting follow-up idea, sure. And, and I think that idea can actually go to also the existing analysis that we have seen uh, for for uh, understanding the the co-occurrence of sequence motifs uh, in in studying transcription factor complexes, so all the all the studies on sequence motif analysis, when when they say that these two transcription factors they potentially uh, co-bind the DNA, as much as I know, they also uh, look at the intermotif distance for those two sequence motifs 
but if you condition the position of one of the motifs binding at the chipsic peak of the corresponding transcription factor, this would be a stronger null. I agree. So this is interesting. Thank you. All right. And uh, I just want to go uh, a little bit back and uh, return to the four uh, features that you named. Um, yeah. I think it would be very interesting if you could describe uh, like what, what they mean. Uh, it's it's tricky without any visuals. Yeah. Uh, it, it would be much, much easier to show them on the picture, but as, as well as you can, uh, can you explain what they are physically? Um, okay, so let me give it a try. <laughs> uh, at least for one or two of them, I think we can describe it uh, more easily than the other ones. Um, the idea for for these different shaped features is again how much opening and geometric angles we have between bases in the same base pair and uh, bases between neighboring base pairs. So, for example, uh, one of the one of the uh, properties is propeller twist. So the idea is in the in the DNA ladder we always have double strand and we have an A which is bound with a T on the other strand and a C which is bound with a G on the other strand. But if we think of the A and the T on two different planes, then they are, if there are twists between these two planes, that gives an angular measurement between how much twisted are these two planes. So this is like holding our, our palms of our hand next to each other and then just giving a twist on one palm. Um, that gives us an angular measurement on how twisted are the planes of the palms. So in case of DNA nucleotides, this is called uh, a propeller twist. Um, the, yeah, because they sort of resemble a propeller, right? Exactly, yes. Uh, there is another property, for example, roll. Roll is, again, if we take our two pumps and just take them together and then slightly open the two pumps, then this opening of the, between the two pumps, that's called the roll. So uh, in this way, there are more than 10 different uh, DNA-shaped features which characterize the, the possible orientation between neighboring nucleotides, uh, I mean nucleotides in the same base pair, and neighboring nucleotides, and all together they give rise to this to this uh, wonderful 3D conformation of DNA. And uh, the the mechanism for for this recognition, we know that the protein has to recognize the 3D structure and the sort of chemical conformation of the DNA because there's all there is to it, right? There is no more information than the you know, atoms and the uh, electrons and the electron densities. Um, but uh, it could be that some um, proteins rely on certain things like the DNA shape more and uh, others may rely on the specific identities of the nucleotides, right? Uh, what do you think of this? And did your research uh, give any insight into this? I think... 
I think you just nailed it that when a protein recognizes its DNA binding sites, the most plausible hypothesis is the protein recognizes electron densities. And there might be different ways to characterize the electron densities. Uh, for some proteins, that characterization might be as simple as just listing the individual nucleotides coming one after another. For some proteins, this might be um, a more complex description coming from a shape or a combination of DNA shape features. And even more interestingly, uh, we just saw another paper earlier this year from uh, Martha Bulick's lab where they showed that a protein can recognize two completely different uh, sequences. And in their analysis, they did not find similarity in shape of those two different sequences. So uh, if you ask me, um, I think we have just hit the tip of the iceberg and there is a whole continuum of possibilities. On one end of this continuum are proteins which are very specific about exact nucleotides coming one after another. So even if we remove and change one nucleotide from the second position, for example, this, this totally disrupts binding. For the other proteins on the other end of this continuum, they can recognize more of DNA shape and less, they're less fussy about the exact identity of the, of the nucleotides. And in between, there are proteins which, which have uh, a combination of emphasis on the exact identity of the nucleotide and DNA shape. And I think this also came out from our study, as you just asked. Um, we also found that for some proteins, this the the shape motifs we of course discover shape motifs but when we go back and see where do the shape motifs occur and do they explain any more regions than can be explained by the sequence motifs we see that the the shape motifs did not come with extra ad additional predictive power so for these motifs for example um etf uh, i'm sorry atf4 for example atf4 is one of those those uh cases where we think that the the sequence motif is fairly good enough. For some other proteins, on the other hand, we see that um, the, the shape plays more important role uh, in addition to, to uh, the sequence motif. So there are, there are combination of possibilities. This is not like one exact uh, biophysical rule fitting the case of every single protein. There are a continuum of possibilities. And if someone wanted to take their favorite transcription factor and uh, and conduct uh, this analysis, uh, how hard would it be? So, for example, uh, I'm interested in, in this particular protein and uh, I have some ChIP-seq data for it and I want to know whether uh, there are some interesting uh, shape motifs. Uh, how, how would I go about it? So uh, the first thing is our code is publicly available in, in GitHub. Uh, you can get the code and uh, there are some, some additional analysis scripts with the code. Uh, of course, we are continuously trying to improve on that. We are trying to put more of, an, uh, more, uh, more of our analytical scripts in GitHub. So the first thing you need is get the sequences of your preferred transcription factor by uh, of your preferred transcription factor uh, you will also need a set of control sequences where the transcription factor presumably does not bind um, 
then run uh, the second step would be um, to get the shape features of these sequences from the tables that I just described from uh, Dr. Remo Rose's lab. They also have an R package that can take your sequence and output the shape profiles that's more convenient. Um, so that would be the second step. In the third step, you run our uh, GIP sampler on these uh, shape profiles. Um, now, GIP sampler is a time-consuming algorithm. So in that case, we try to like be somewhat more uh, pragmatic rather than trying to be exhaustive. What I mean by that, you can start with you can start your search for motifs with smaller sizes. Let's say if you search for 10 base pair long motifs, that's that's going to finish much sooner than if you search for 15 or 20 base pair long motifs. So uh, using all those like uh, pragmatic decisions, you can you can get a first good sense of the shape preference of your transcription factor. I would say uh, within six hours, again, deep sampling, it, it's uh, an expensive, a computationally expensive procedure. Um, and from there on, the analysis are very simple, very straightforward. Does it give uh, or is there a way to obtain some indication of how, it, how much importance does the uh, DNA shape have for uh, for a particular protein? As of now, if we just go by our analysis, we, we just find out what fraction of the positive data set, meaning the data set where we know that the transcription factor has bound, uh, how what fraction of that data set was explained by sequence motif and whether the shape motif has explained any additional fraction. Uh, but of course, we can build a second model now, taking the shape motifs and the sequence motifs together, and then build a second model. And by building that second model, now we can check what are the relative importance and dispensabilities of these individual types of motifs. Okay, and when you say like how many sequences were explained by the shape motif, so this means you have some kind of threshold, right? And so you... You attempt to classify or or to predict whether a particular sequence is a binding site. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. So um, again, uh, one way to go about this would be to identify uh, a distribution of shape values, the most likely shape values at each position of the binding site. But to keep it simple and to remove the uh, problems of choosing the proper threshold of significant cutoff values. Right now, we have just put ranges of values at each position. So we say that for minor groove width, if this is a shape motif, then the allowable range of minor groove width values for position one is this. Then we note a similar range of allowable minor groove width values for the second position and so on. And we say that a sequence has an occurrence of this shape motif of minor groove width if there is a window in that sequence where every minor groove width values fits within these corresponding ranges. So uh, that's our threshold. Now, how do we capture the range? So for that, 
range calculation, we, ne we, we need that uh, negative control data set that I first mentioned. So when we first get a Gibbs sampling output, that's already a description of shape motif, but we want it to be somewhat more, uh, more conservative. So now we take the mean value coming out from the Gibbs sampler, and we gradually increase the number of standard deviations around the mean values. And for each possible number of standard deviations, we see how many fractions of the uh, positive set and how many fractions of the negative set have a hit by that shape motif. And we optimize an F-score, which is uh, an accuracy score for a binary classifier. And the number of standard deviations for which we see that the F-score is optimized, that gives our, our standard deviations to calculate the range. So that's how we come up with a range and report our final uh, shape motifs. And I just want to, to to clarify for people who want to try this at home um, that uh, if if you do something like this, if you want to uh, check the uh, predictive power of of this DNA shape motif, uh, you should uh, use different subsets of sequences for training the model, for finding the motif, and for evaluating the motif. You exactly. Cannot, yeah. You yeah, cannot train. Uh, you cannot find the motif on a set of, you know, a set of positive and negative sequences, and then evaluate it on the same uh, pair of uh, of sets of sequences. That's correct. That's correct. So I mean, if uh, if you take a quick look at at the paper, we also had this same framework that you just described. That we have a separate training data and a separate validation or test data. Do you want to share uh, the future directions of your research? So if I understand correctly, uh, this particular research that we were talking about, um, was it done before you, you became a professor? So uh, what are you going to, to do now with your lab? <laughs> so that's an interesting question. Um, of course, there are, uh, there are more than one possible sources of error in this whole pipeline the model that we just said from which we get the DNA shape data, that model is, is not a reflection of the endogenous DNA. The assumption is this is a very local scale model. So even if a nucleosome binds to a sequence, then the nearby DNA shape would change, but not to an extent that the local maxima and minima would change. Uh, so there are possible sources of errors into the data that we use. And then our model also has possibilities of false discovery. So I think the most pressing uh, agenda for us right now is to validate some of these predictions experimentally. And we are working on that now. Um, the other thing is we are interested in evolution of DNA shape. So in course of evolution, uh, how often do we think that there was a nucleotide substitution, but actually the DNA shape was conserved? Um, and then that, that can bring a lot more follow-up questions about those DNA shape uh, conserved regions. Uh, we have actually done some preliminary work along that line. Um, we are also interested to understand how DNA shape uh, influences the binding of transcription factor complexes, because this is known that in many cases, when transcription factors bind the DNA, com bind uh, the DNA as a complex, the the specificity of the complex changes uh, in very 
subtle way from the individual specificities of the of the two transcription factors in the complex so that's another thing we want to do and finally one of the questions that you had in the middle of the of our discussion that are we discovering motifs of all features jointly or this is an independent discovery of motifs per feature so now we are working to to upgrade the model to a second version where we can discover motifs of all features jointly. Very cool. And uh, anything else you, you want to mention or talk about before we wrap this up? Um, sure. So uh, again, I mean, this was some, some very interesting idea that uh, came out from uh, my discussions uh, with my postdoc mentor, Dr. Catherine Pollard. So I am deeply indebted to her for encouraging me to move ahead and also to our collaborator and my other mentor, Dr. Benoit Bruneau at Gladstone Institute, San Francisco. Um, both of them have given us, have given me uh, lots of encouragement and input. Uh, we had some people uh, who gave us very valuable feedback on improving the work and encouraged us to move ahead with the hypothesis. Um, we are also indebted to the anonymous reviewers at Cell Systems. They also suggested very interesting new analysis. So we, could, we did that and uh, got somewhat more confident on our conclusions. And of course, I want to acknowledge to our funding sources, National Institutes of Health and a research fund from William H. Younger Jr. to uh, my mentor, Benoit Bruneau. Great, Hassan. Uh, very interesting work. And uh, it was great talking to you. Thank you for coming to the podcast. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I am really excited about this whole idea. Um, so I hope that this whole field will move to uh, an improved understanding of, of DNA recognition and the effect of nucleotide variation. <laughs> <laughs>